with the uh, series of talks that I've been uh, giving. This is the third in a series on bringing our heart practices to uh, difficult or challenging situations. Finding ways in difficult or challenging situations that might be personal or interpersonal or might involve the larger world, finding ways to um, keep the heart present and open when there may be many pressures to shut down, largely out of habit, largely out of um, often a sense of um, habitual ways to protect ourselves. And it's really about the role of heart practices, and by that I'm referring to loving-kindness, compassion practice, joy, equanimity, forgiveness, gratitude, and other practices that work particularly to bring out the awakened heart. Um, So here we're really talking about the role of those practices in helping us to be with difficult situations with greater freedom, greater skillfulness, greater clarity, greater um, compassion, empathy, and awakened heart. So this is both uh, a great challenge for all of us. These are qualities uh, deeply needed in the world, deeply needed for all sorts of healing, whether it's, uh, again, personal, interpersonal, or related to larger social concerns. In the last two times, we've particularly focused on forgiveness and the, uh, the power of uh, forgiveness practice. And today, the focus will be especially on um, compassion practice. And I'll see where we are at the end. I'm thinking I'll either next time continue with compassion practice or maybe bring in, since it'll be the last in the uh, series, Next time, I may bring in equanimity practice as the quality of the heart which can hold everything and which brings in especially the wisdom dimension. So I'll see, I'll see where we are, but um, equanimity would, would round it out somewhat. I may, I may go there. And so first, uh, a few of the general pers- perspectives that we brought in last time particularly about how to be skillful when there are difficult circumstances. And uh, often I think that we can take the difficult circumstances that are smaller in our lives and train for the larger ones that we all face at times. That the real, the basis for this practice, I think, is that we train with the small stuff, whether it's training in mindfulness or training in wisdom or training in the heart practices or training in being ethical, we especially, we especially can practice with the everyday small stuff that on a scale of 10 is maybe up to five or six in terms of degree of difficulty. And that oftentimes we say we, we wait to practice until things are very difficult. And so we, 
the encouragement will be to find ways, as we saw with compassion practice, with, I'm sorry, with forgiveness practice, that uh, there are wonderful ways to practice forgiveness practice are just on an everyday basis with really small things that are happening. You know, one gets a, a nasty email. You know, again, after proper response, or maybe before proper response, we can do forgiveness practice or driving interactions. <laughs> you know, or just everyday misunderstandings. Again, remembering that forgiveness uh, doesn't at all mean uh, condoning or forgetting. It doesn't uh, have anything to do with inaction or passivity. It's, if you remember the uh, beautiful passage we looked at last time from the Dalai Lama where he was saying forgiveness means, and he was giving a high degree of difficulty example, the, you know, the uh, invasion by the Chinese. He said that what, that what forgiveness means in that context is that he doesn't hold as much as is possible negative feeling, but he still uh, acts as much as he can, right? So forgiveness is about what's, what's there in the heart which is leading to polarization. So we practice in small ways, and then I'll encourage that also with uh, compassion practice. And we can see that, again, uh, as I mentioned last time, there are a few ways to hold how we are with difficult circumstances. Uh, one, of the, one of the aspects is really to cultivate uh, an attitude in which we don't uh, simply take difficulties as curses, that we actually develop ways to open to difficult circumstances. Again, we train especially with the less difficult ones at first as much as we can. But we have an attitude where we recognize the habitual conditioning, which is when something difficult or painful comes up, we often um, don't want it to be there. We want to get rid of it. We don't want to open to it. We want it to be gone. We want to use our meditation practice not to open to it, but to help get rid of it. Have you noticed ever have in your meditation practice that there is a subtle uh, interest in having negative states go away? And of course, meditation can be very potent, particularly through concentration and the use of uh, what we would call meditative antidotes in helping to shift away from negative states. And that's valuable at those times when we can't really be in a balanced way with what's difficult. That's, that's always to be remembered, that this practice isn't about going into difficulties where we don't have some resources or enough resources. And that in situations where the difficulties are there and it's too much, it is actually skillful to pull back, come out of it, uh, use an antidote, um, make it go away temporarily. That's valuable in the short run. In the long run, we want to find ways to open even to the large difficulties. So a lot of this is developing the kind of the art form and the skillful means, really, for being with difficulties. That's always important to remember that we, we, we are not simply going blindly and letting ourselves be taken away by difficult states or, or, or suffering, that we want to go into those states when we have resources and skill and perspective. And that's why we can really see um, a lot of what we're doing as a training 
that at first, maybe for many or most of us, works with the smaller stuff, but that when the larger stuff is there, we bring resources. We have some capacities. So in a lot of ways, our practice is very valuable in the short run, but it can be uh, tremendously valuable when those difficult situations come up. And I can see that in my own life many, many times. Sometimes unexpected difficulties come and I can say, oh, where did that balance come from? Relatively balanced, you know? Or it could be, also be, hmm, guess I need a little more practice on that one. <laughs> could, go, could go both ways. Um, and so the attitude towards difficulties is very crucial. And the attitudes towards what's difficult or painful And this is where we can really remember that we have strong conditioning not to be with what's painful. And we can know that, and again, through our mindfulness practice in which we learn to be with what is painful. When it's not causing injury, we learn to hang out with painful emotions or sometimes painful physical sensations, again, when it's not causing damage, but simply there, we learn how to do that. We learn how, in a way, not to follow the habitual conditioning simply to, when a difficult or painful circumstance comes up, to pull away. We learn how to be with it when it's there, which is a very significant training. And some of it comes, again, in small ways. You know, For me, initially, the training was how to be with a knee pain or how to be with a pain in my shoulder that came from sitting for a while. And especially experiencing that on retreats, you know, where it would be, you know, I would come back for another sitting, Uh uh-oh, the shoulder's that way again. Uh Uh-oh, I guess I'm not going to be in primarily in bliss for this sitting. (laughs) And, you know, I didn't say, oh, another training opportunity. (laughs) But essentially it was that. You know, again, we make the discrimination where it's not causing harm for the body. But sometimes there's pain that's very valuable to be with. And sometimes, of course, it's just ineliminable. So we can practice when we go to the dentist. Sorry if that was triggering. (laughs) We can practice when we go to the dentist. I can think of many times just, oh, you know, the needle comes in and I notice, oh, I see, you know, how they use those nine-inch needles at a dentist. The nine-inch needle is coming closer. I notice, oh, anxiety is arising. Let me just be with that. Oh, strong sensation. <laughs> Let me just be. And that, that's our training. Because we remember that, and this is really the key, I think it's a key distinction for compassion practice, is that we, we, we make a distinction really, between pain and suffering. It's not always clear, actually, even in the teachings, actually in the old text, but I think something like that distinction is really, really crucial. That I think the way we actually define suffering is a little bit more technical than we find in in everyday English. That we make a distinction between pain and suffering, and pain is the presence of the unpleasant. And suffering is the reactivity, the pushing away. Suffering is the reaction in the mind to the unpleasant, where we uh, don't want it to be there, and there's some tension, some contraction. And that distinction is really, really crucial. 
because again in English we, we often use pain and suffering synonymously. So for me, having looked at that, and some of you know one of the texts where that's expressed very clearly, the text called The Teaching of the Two Arrows, remember that? Which I, which I often give here, which is that we are all, as it were, uh, shot at times by an arrow. The first arrow, the first arrow is that of pain. It could be physical pain, it could be emotional pain, it could be the pain of unfairness, it could be pain in relation to the world. We all have a certain amount of that, some more than others. And the Buddha said that everyone is shot by the first arrow. Practitioners, non-practitioners, Buddhas are shot by the first arrow. Buddhas have pain in that sense. But he said that what distinguishes a non-practitioner, or we might say a non-practitioner from a skillful practitioner, is the skillful practitioner learns not because of the first arrow to shoot a second arrow. In that we have pain present and we learn not to react at the level of the body, at the level uh, of the mind in response to uh, difficult emotions. And we, don't, we learn, in other words, not to be reactive. We learn to be able to be w- with physical... Um, physically unpleasant situations or, or phenomena in the body when they're there and in a sense they have to be there and it's, it's okay for them to be there. Um, we learn not to contract, not to react and so forth. We learn how to do that with uh, physically unpleasant um, sensations. We learn how to do that and this is probably more uh, obvious in a way, we learn how to do that with difficult emotions. We learn how to have there be anger without the anger manifesting in shooting the second arrow by blaming myself, blaming another, attacking another, and so forth. We learn how to have um, sadness be there. We learn how to uh, have, let's say, uh, we learn after a difficult interaction with another person we can watch the tendencies to shoot the second arrow, which might be to um, send a quick email <laughs> or to call someone up on the phone and vent or whatever. We, we know, I think, at the interpersonal and emotional level what that second arrow looks like probably more clearly even than the first arrow. Although the, the fact of that physical contraction is connected with the fact, uh, quite significant, that the really almost the first area of application of meditation in the medical field was for people with chronic pain who learned not to be so tense around what almost had to be there, right? And again, a a statistic that I like to uh, offer is that doctors say as much as 80 or 90 percent of pain is the reaction to the pain, not the original stimulus, right? And we know that. So that is the second arrow. Very crucial distinction. You know, another way of saying it, that pain is a given, suffering is optional. So suffering is that reactivity. And that's a very crucial distinction because, in my mind, compassion practice is really directed to suffering and maybe less to pain. People may have pain and may, if they are skillful, not have suffering. Now, the reason why I think they're close in English and that is that when people have 
habitual conditioning and are bound up with it, pain leads to suffering almost automatically. Right? That's why we want to ease pain. But we know, maybe in our own experience and that of others, that people can sometimes be quite balanced with either physical pain or emotional pain. So interesting point. And I interpret uh, compassion practice as primarily directed to suffering. Again, recognizing that people with a lot of pain will often go into suffering. It's, it's, it's again, where the conditioning is there. And so they're, they're close. But I think it's really the suffering that is the main focus of practice. Because, you know, so in, in the larger sense of the tradition, the aim is to transform suffering. It's, not to get, it's to actually get rid of suffering, but it's not to get rid of pain, which is not possible as long as we're human beings. So a really crucial point that I sometimes is not very clear. You know, and I, I find that really, really crucial. So we can have that attitude based on that understanding that it can be skillful to open to a painful situation rather than follow the habitual conditioning. And so that may help us sometimes to, when we, especially when we continually practice in our mindfulness practice, in our compassion practice, we really cultivate something that goes against the conditioning, which we say, there is pain present, let me open to it. Again, when we're balanced, when we have the resources and so forth, when it's skillful, when it's appropriate. Those are very, very important qualifications. As I mentioned, maybe we can come back to that in the discussion. So we have that perspective, and as we practice more and more, it becomes more and more possible for us to at least a little bit remember that when a difficult situation comes up. You know, again, it depends on the degree of difficulty. We can practice with the lesser degrees of difficulty. You know, um, with the larger degree of difficulties, it's hard for all of us. I remember the spiritual teacher Ramdas once saying, "You know, when my family's concerned, my spiritual practice goes out the window." <laughs> you know, for certain things. And it's like, you know, it's the famous line, um, they installed my buttons and so they know where they are. <laughs> and, so, uh, and, so <clears throat> and so that we can think of that as advanced practice or <clears throat> high degree of difficulty practice. So we, again, we practice where it's not quite as difficult. And recognizing that all of us will be at times lost. But, but if we keep practicing, especially with the small ways in our sitting practice, in our formal practice, small ways during the day, that's what's going to build us for having the capacity to open to what's difficult um, in uh, larger situations. Again, whether it's my own pain, whether it's interpersonal pain, or whether it's the pain of the world. You know? And again, people who are skillful with opening to pain are so deeply needed in our world. You know, to have people who can open to their own pain you know, rather than not face the pain and, in a sense, act out. There's a line from John Tarrant, the Zen teacher and psychologist, and he said, um, when we face our own darkness, he's using darkness in the sense of difficulty, when we face our own darkness, others don't have to carry it for us. So tremendous 
uh, contribution to ourselves, to others, to the world. And so compassion practice depends on that understanding. Compassion practice depends on the understanding that when there is difficulty, I can, in a sense, as Pema Chodron, the Tibetan teacher, likes to say, I can lean into what's difficult. Again, think of this as a practice. It's not like, okay, instantly I should now lean into what's painful. Okay? But think of it as something that we develop with our mindfulness practice, with our compassion practice, if we take on a particular compassion practice like the one we did. Those are, in a sense, uh, small ways uh, that we practice in small ways every day of deliberately leaning into um, what's difficult or what's painful. And so it's sometimes said that among these heart practices, compassion practice may be the hardest because we are deliberately going into where there's pain as we did in the practice. We are bringing it up for a person with a fair amount of pain or suffering, for myself, for others. We deliberately go into that in the practice. And again, we can do that in our uh, daily practice. We can do that for 10 minutes and it makes a difference. But that it helps us to remember maybe when a difficult situation comes up, oh, here's my reaction. There's an alternative. I can go in a different, I can go in a different direction. So, a few words about compassion. Oops, I forgot to record mine. Oh well. Forgot to press the button, but we have another one. Okay. Um, so, in the, in the tradition, the word for compassion is karuna. And literally it means a kind of quivering of the heart when in contact with pain or suffering. That there, I think particularly suffering, that there is a kind of quivering of the heart where, and we know from modern uh, research that this is sort of what we sometimes call limbic resonance or the resonance that we have with others or with ourselves. So compassion is when the heart is open and there is so, some kind of suffering that we have a kind of resonance. We can have a kind of we have a kind of empathy. We uh, are willing and able to open to that, to that pain or suffering. There are really uh, two main forms of compassion. One of them is a form of compassion which is more an inner practice, and the other is when compassion is more of an outer practice. And so as an inner practice, it takes shape especially as a kind of empathy that we, in a way, resonate with the other. And we can practice this all the time. We can practice that resonance with another person, the cultivation of empathy, the tendency to, go, to be able to resonate with another. And again, this is, I think, just a, a very natural ability. Where it's more difficult is when we have difficult circumstances, difficult interpersonal situations, we often tend to polarize, right? And empathy goes out the window, right? We, we really don't have that capacity for empathy. Barriers come up. We maybe judge the person. The person becomes an other in some sense. And the empathy that's normal there as a human capacity 
isn't there in the same way. And of course, I think empathy gets uh, often conditioned out of us by how the culture works. You know, I think that some of, you know, I think for most or many of us, we've had to relearn how to be empathic. You know, sometimes that conditioning will take the shape of being totally ruled by distracted thinking or by our minds or be totally thinking. I think this was my case. My own conditioning, I think, I think my nature was to be quite empathic. I, I, I mentioned sometimes that I knew this from the fact that I cried during driver ed movies in high school. Anyone else? Have, <laughs> you know, or and I also like to mention that, you know, I think my sister was also deeply, deeply empathic, and she actually cried during television commercials. Many, many of them. You know that, that if you actually have an open heart, you know, there's tremendous poignancy. And that somehow we learn to shut down some of it's by the fact that we are thinking all the time. I think this is my conditioning. But some, you know, some situations would kind of break through all the thinking. And then later, through meditation and other trainings, had to learn not to have thinking dominate so much. So that's very common, probably more from a little more for men than for women, but of course it can, you know, both kinds of conditioning can be there for everyone. And and so we have to find that way to come, come to empathy, uh, to be able to open, to resonate with another. You know, and sometimes it's when we really see that uh, the other person is just like us. You know, that the other person, that I've had that, when I have a certain experience and another person has it, I will tend to resonate with that person. I will tend to be empathic and compassionate, right? So sometimes we know that, oh, I'm a little more compassionate because I've had that difficult experience, whatever it might be. You know, a difficult experience related to health or to a challenge at work or to a challenging relationship. And if I've had that and open to it and someone else has that, I'm going to be a very valuable person. You know? And sometimes it takes that experience. Otherwise, we might not be empathic. I heard this very uh, interesting story from my brother-in-law, uh, Ron Smith, who... who uh, works with the, uh, actually, with um, a charity, works with the homeless quite a lot in, in Berkeley. Um, and he told the story of meeting a man who had formerly been a burglar. And he said at one point, uh, here's the story, um, at one point he himself was burglarized. It was only then was he empathic towards the people he burglarized. It was very interesting, he said, I was burglarized. I reflected, oh yeah, I used to do that until I got burglarized myself. Then I felt violated. After that, I couldn't do it to others anymore. <laughs> no, it's, it's an interesting story, right? But there, there's something, it was, it was like, I mean, extreme in a certain way. But there's that sense that with, with compassion, we open up empathically. We open up to, um, to another's being and another is particularly the pain and suffering, and we can, we can be with it. That, that is more the inner aspect. And then the, the outer aspect is the sense of responsiveness. Part of compassion isn't just to be empathic and receptive, but it's also to be active. And I think the full development of compassion is both receptive and active, finding ways to be skillful in response. And we have, um, in the tradition, 
we have, uh, in the Buddhist tradition, we have a lot of images of those who are compassionate in an outward way, and that balance of receptive and active. And uh, over here we have uh, this drawing, which some of you may think is a Avalokitesvara, but this is actually the Bodhisattva of Compassion. It's a version of uh, Avalokitesvara called Uznisa Sitapatra. And, but very much like a Avalokitesvara has um, supposedly a thousand arms. And if you look carefully, they each have a hand, and on the hand there's an eye. And that's symbolic of the combination of the receptive and the active. The eye sees. The eye is with what's happening. And the hand is able to respond. And so, and in the, in the um, ancient mythology, at first this was uh, a bodhisattva who was a helper who just had the normal amount of arms. And it was seen that the need was so great. And so at first then, um, Avalokiteshvara, the Bodhisattva of Compassion, developed 12 arms to help more, but that wasn't quite enough. And so eventually they split up and they developed a thousand arms, which I think really means etc. <laughs> <laughs> it means an unlimited amount of arms to respond. And this is, this is, this is a Bodhisattva. And when Avalokiteshvara goes to Tibet, Avalokiteshvara uh, changes gender and becomes Tara, but also stays as a male. There's both a male bodhisattva of compassion named Chenrezi and a female named Tara. When Avalokiteshvara goes to um, China, there's a complete trans- transgender operation. <laughs> <laughs> and Avalokiteshvara becomes Kuan Yin. You know, and that's why I brought in Kuan Yin to be around me. We have many manifestations of Kuan Yin. And Kuan Yin is said to be she who hears the cries of the world. There's both the receptive and then also there's a response and is the most beloved of the bodhisattvas, I think, in, in China. So there are both of those aspects. And I, I thought maybe, maybe this is the time. I thought I would just play you. There's a chant. One of the forms of compassion practice in China would be chanting to Kuan Yin. And I thought I'd just play briefly a, about a one-minute version of the, uh, the chant to Kuan Yin and the actual words I put onto the handout, Namo Kuan Shir Yin Pu Sa, which is more or less saying, chanting Kuan Yin, Pu Sa means Bodhisattva in the Chinese. So this is basically saying Kuan Yin, Bodhisattva, and calling on Kuan Yin. So you can you can look at those words if you want to follow along with this. It's, I'm sorry, yeah, it's not in a very obvious place. It's at the bottom of the uh, column on some other modes of compassion practice, right at the bottom in bold, in small print. So here it goes.
chanting was by uh, Kitasaro and Tanisara, who are um, Westerners, as those are their uh, monk and nun names, and they often teach here. And I think typically about once a year they offer a retreat that really brings in a lot of the heart practices. But if that chant uh, calls you in a way as one of your compassion practices, you can, you can do that just for a short time. Um, using that chant that we have on our handout. Maybe just a few other words, and I think I'll open things up. Um, as, with the, as with the practice of forgiveness, and as with all the practices of loving-kindness or joy or equanimity, there are what we might call distortions <coughs> of the practice, that, or um, what in the tradition is usually translated as near enemies. Uh, we could say uh, uh, Larry Yang uses the language he calls us near near opposites, and Heather Sundberg likes to use the language of these are near misses. <laughs> we could also speak of it as the shadow. There's a shadow of compassion, you know, which all of us know if we if we if we're in the helping professions, that there's a shadow element to um, manifesting compassion either in the receptivity to it or in the response. And it's worthwhile mentioning those briefly. And I think there, I imagine there are quite a few shadows because it's inevitable when we're practicing and developing compassion that there will be distortions, just as there were distortions in forgiveness that were possible. Distortions in forgiveness when we maybe use forgiveness not to kind of squash something or not to open to it or as an excuse not to act or we actually are condoning the action or we're, we're codependent with irresponsibility or whatever. There are a lot of possible shadows to forgiveness, and similarly with compassion. The classical one that's mentioned as the near enemy or near opposite is pity. And this is when there would be a kind of um, aversion and sometimes distance actually to the pain or to the suffering. And we, we may find that a lot when we, if we're in the helping professions. If we've done that help... Uh, a helping profession for a long time, we will, we will know pity very, quite well. We will know because there's a distancing. You know, my favorite story related to pity is from uh, a man named Daniel Barnes, who's been in the Spirit Rock community, who's been in a wheelchair for most of his adult life. He was once in the um, grocery store, and someone came up to him. And there was the thing about the near enemy or the near miss is that there is some compassion, but it's mixed in with some other stuff. And so this woman came up to him in the grocery store and said, I admire you so much. If I were you, I would kill myself. <laughs> right? Can you hear the distortion? <laughs> right? And there was some way that, uh, but there was something like compassion, right? It wasn't just <clears throat> negative. There was something there that was trying to communicate care. But it was mixed up with aversion, we would say. Or the fact that this made her so uncomfortable that she couldn't be with it. And she was in the mix of that. And that's going to be inevitable when we work with compassion, that there are going to be ways that we might be pitying or what might be some other forms 
that of kind of near misses of compassion. Can you think of some that occur to you? Maybe one that just occurred to me it might be helping people, and I, I might be a know-it-all. You know, I'm helping people, and there may be some care, but there's a sense I'm controlling, and I'm the know-it-all. In a sense, a version of I'm better than, right? Others that occur to you that might be sort of the shadow of compassion, or distorted versions of compassion. Anything occur to anyone? Please. One is when you identify too much with that other person, I think. Yeah. And you have gone through maybe an experience like that. Yeah. It's not always helpful for them. Yeah, it might be that one's with another and you actually are so caught up in maybe in the pain of the situation, perhaps because of one's own experience, that one, in a sense, merges with it and is, you know, is, gets into it and is trying to, you know, show, oh, yeah, I really know what you're experiencing. I'm not saying, this might be a little different from what you're saying, but I really know what you're experiencing. Meanwhile, neglecting to be uh, really clear about what the other person needs, right? Something like that. So, yeah, please. It might be condescending. Yeah, might be condescending, condescension. Again, maybe from a place of being better. Please, Arjun. Spirit of the everyday. Yeah. Someone asks you help on a computer-related issue. Yeah. And you give advice, but it can be frustrating. The person who's asking may not know all the technical terms. You may think you know more, and it can turn into a kind of convoluted interaction. Yeah, yeah. So one might actually be compassionately helping someone, let's say with a computer, but coming from the point of view of my. technical expertise with the computer and the other person's obvious inability to grasp some of the fundamentals. (laughs) I may be condescending. I may actually, again, not simply be coming with caring that uses appropriate skillful means. There might be other stuff, you know. So that's that's what we want to look for. Maybe to, to summarize this, there's going to be naturally some shadow. With all of our beautiful qualities, there are always going to be some shadow element. And we want to have ways to look at that. And, and that's, we can do that uh, simply by noticing when they come up. And you know, as we study compassion more, we'll probably find other near misses, right? We'll find a lot of them. And they're really, it's kind of interesting to find them, to identify them. And just that that's a fundamental part of the practice. Yeah, let me, can, let me finish. And maybe we could bring up your point. I'll, I'll come to discussion in just a moment. Is that okay? Okay. So attending to the shadow, really crucial for our compassion practice. Maybe just one last thing to say is uh, about the variety of ways to practice compassion. And some of them are are in in the the handout. Um, As an inner practice, we can use the practice that we did um, at the end of the sitting. That's the formal compassion practice that's linked with loving kindness, with joy and equanimity. And that involves a repetition of phrases. You can see some other possible phrases that people have used here. So we can work with that formal practice. Doing that 10 minutes a day will make a difference. It starts with all of these heart practices with difficult situations. As we bring in these practices uh, and do them even for a, a small amount of time a day, they will have an impact. And so if you do the compassion practice for 10 minutes a day for the next week, let's say, 
it'll start to establish a groove that can be there. We can also really uh, practice something like empathy more regularly. You know, and there are a variety of ways to practice empathy. One of my f- favorite ways is to, just to practice in a very simple way. It's to, and we've done this in some of our speech practice uh, that we've done here at times, which is just to attune to a person's feelings and what seems to matter for that person. And just say, for the next three minutes or five minutes, I'm just going to attune to this person and have a sense of what the person is feeling and what matters. You know, it might be uh, just an example. So, okay, I'll um, mention something that happened uh, to me uh, and I want you to be empathic towards me. And then, but tune into my feelings and what seems to matter for me, okay? And so, uh, let's see what I want to come up with. Um, Okay, just a simple example. Yesterday, I had acupuncture from my wonderful acupuncturist, Dr. Chen. And I I love acupuncture because we get to, um, you know, we talk for 20 minutes with every time of acupuncture. And we have a wonderful discussion. We're talking about mind-body medicine and all sorts of things, talking. Okay, so cut. Okay, so as you were tuning in, uh, that was a very simple, everyday example. Uh, what were some of my emotions? Delight. Yeah, delight. What else? Wanting to be heard. Yeah, let's go. That, that, that may be um, a need or something I wanted, but let's, we want to, yeah. So if we were doing this more fully, we'd have a full education about the range of emotions, what they are. But here we're wanting to be strict with and, and tune into feelings for emotions. Other emotions? delight. But again, good connection is um, maybe something that mattered to me. That would be more in the second area. So you see, so, so you're very empathic, uh, and that would fit. And what might be an emotion that I experienced that would kind of connect with that good connection? Any, anyone want to? Gratitude. Gratitude might be there. Delight, delight happiness, joy, mm-hmm. right? Some, something like that. So you get the sense. What were some other you know, there was good connection. There was, what was the one you mentioned? Uh, uh, wanting to be heard. Yeah, being heard, let's say. Having a good connection, being heard. Those were things that mattered. Anything else that occurred to you about what mattered? Sharing. Yeah, sharing. Um, yeah. Being cared for. Right, so you got it, right? So you were being empathic to me. And as I, you know, as I was sitting here, I was able to let go of the role of being a teacher at this moment. And just feel the empathy, and it feels great, right? To be heard, right? It's something that is so basic, you know. We I often say what human beings most want is to be heard and seen and cared for, and when that's happening, the rest is dessert, dessert really, right? So to speak, and um, and so you can do something like that empathy practice just in a very ordinary way during the day, just. You're in a phone conversation, just say, whatever else is happening, let me tune into those two things. Right? So that's a very, that's a basic practice that's helping with compassion. You know, we can do that. And then there are just a few others mentioned. It would be along the more active side, it might be to deliberately go visit someone who's in need. And take that as a practice that you do once a week, twice a week, something like that. Actually responding. Or if you have a friend who's in need, maybe deliberately um, doing, um, connecting with the person. Maybe that's already happening, right? But maybe there's some way that you want to stretch a little bit with that 
uh, more active aspect of compassion. And then there are other practices which we find in other traditions. In Tibetan tradition, there's a wonderful Tongman practice. I mean, maybe I'll bring that up next week. I'll see. So let me finish here. We have a range of practices. We've looked at the shadow. We have a general sense of compassion. We have a sense that compassion goes against the conditioning that would have us pull away from what's difficult. We also have an understanding of the distinction between pain and suffering, which is really crucial in all of this. And we have a sense that um, having the intention, having an alternative intention when something difficult comes up, other than uh, pulling away or reacting, is possible. And that's really the basis for bringing the compassion practice more fully into our repertoire of how to be with difficult circumstances. So I'll stop there. And invite any, um, any comments or, or questions or additions. And I'll repeat them after. Yep. Now your, your point, please. Yeah, yeah. And I think um, Kirchner talked about it in his book, um, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Yeah. There seems to be a, a human element that we question why that's happening to someone. Yeah. So we, we so put it off into the shadow so we don't think about it. Human nature uh, is to say they must have done something wrong. Right. And so. That's where we have to sort of nudge ourselves from thinking that. Right, that, that I'll, I'll repeat the question, um, or the point, really, the reflection. And, and that is that uh, part of the shadow may be that we have um, even a whole way of understanding in which uh, when something bad happens, it must mean that there is a bad, the person is bad, you know, or that, you know, I mean, we could have that uh, view often connected with different religious views. It could be connected with a doctrine of karma. It was, I, I think at times historically, it's been connected with different types of Christian understanding, like predestination. You know, the, you know some of the, who was it, was it the Puritans and others had the sense that how, you know, because everyone, everyone wants to know who are the elect, right? And, and so one theory said, the elect are those who are doing well. Those who are doing poorly are the unelect, <laughs> right? And that's been, that, that would be a shadow side of, I think, of that religion. And we probably find that in ourselves because it's very confusing for most people why bad things happen, right? And one easy answer is they must be bad. It must be their karma, something they did. And we can, again, we can find that around the world. Yeah, so very... Very interesting point. We could add that to the shadow that there might be views that we have that tend to penalize people who are um, not well off. Yeah. And we can see that, I think, with, you know, uh, you know, what on a social level we can see that a lot, you know, like with criminalizing the poor, things like that. You know, we do that in various ways in this culture. Yeah. Please. I think it's difficult sometimes for me when I'm when I feel like I'm being open-hearted yeah. and helpful to someone yeah. and compassionate and, and empathic, either with a family member or in my work as a mental health professional. Yeah. And, and then when there's a, 
seems to be a distortion on the other side. Um, sometimes I struggle because I can I can feel like I didn't do well enough. Yeah. I mean, because the feeling might be, or the the response from the other person might be, uh, you didn't really help me. You know? Yeah. Uh, and you're irritating, or whatever it is. Yeah. And so I have to, and I realize that's part of my expectation, yeah. I guess, but that is a struggle that I was having just recently with someone yeah. with an email. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, a great, it's a great example that you give of, uh, uh, I'll repeat it briefly, of um, noticing that, again, uh, being in the helping professions, right, that... Uh, and, but this could happen in all sorts of interactions that we might notice that we have a certain expectation, if we're helping someone, to give one example, of a certain response, right? And that um, we might find when we don't get the response we wanted, or if the other person maybe is reactive, that I might start to get reactive myself at the other person's reactivity. This is called mutual shooting of second arrows. <laughs> Or, or I might, I might blame myself. So this is where, this is where practice comes in. That it actually, it actually is. This is, I think, a, maybe an advanced capability. It's something that I find very, very important. Which is, can I actually know? And where I have expectation, I am set up for that. Where I have an expectation, I am set up to be reactive when I don't get what I want. And so we have to really train by seeing where we have expectations, because as long as the expectation is there, I actually won't see the other person accurately. And I have to somehow be able to see, oh, that other person is being reactive. That other per-, you know, so it's actually not about me, necessarily. Right? And that is a training that only is going to come from doing this practice a lot, right? from really being mindful of my own reactivity. And then, because actually in the classical tradition, being aware of reactivity outside of oneself was, was part of the practice. We mostly practice as having it be an inner practice, but it, I think it's actually a part of practice to be able to see others. And of course, there's possibilities of projection and not seeing accurately, but I think often when we don't have assumptions, expectations, and projections, we can actually notice as best we can another's reactivity, right? And, and to be able to do that actually lets us act more skillfully in relationship to that other person. Yeah. Yeah. Please. I thought of another dark side of compassion, of feeling self-satisfied. Yeah. Oh, aren't I a good person? Yeah. So it could be um, another part of the shadow or another near miss. I may actually be pretty compassionate, but in Buddhist language we would say I identify with being a compassionate person. I take it on as an identity. You know, I just did these wonderful things. Hey. <laughs> I am really developing compassion. I hope others see that. <laughs> so, great, great point. Please. Yeah. Um, I, I really got a lot out of distinguishing between pain and suffering. Yeah, yeah. And then I started thinking about it in terms of activism. Yeah. And there, whether it's collecting food or marching against yeah. the war effort or whatever, that if, I'm, I'm trying to figure out if if those if these acts 
uh, our acts to directly relieve pain. Yeah. Or and or suffering or it, it, activism seems to me yeah. to do with pain. Yeah, how does this fit with, with activism? And again, um, it's, a, it's a great question. And, you know, I know for myself, it was, you know, in, in working with Buddhist Peace Fellowship and working with activists, it was a really important question. That was, I was actually had some confusion about that for some time. Because if the real point is just ending suffering, and in a sense, someone could be with a lot of pain and wouldn't be suffering, then why shouldn't we just teach everyone the spiritual ways to not suffer and uh, forget about just meeting pain, right? So it could be confusing. And, um, but what, what I think the key is that when there is normal conditioning or the habitual conditioning, pain translates into suffering almost immediately for most people, right? And, and so... And uh, that's part of it. But I think also it's part of a human response. I think it's part of compassion also to be responsive when there's pain, to be caring when there's pain, knowing that for most people it's difficult. You know, and so I think that, and, and that it's also part of compassion simply to meet human needs. So if someone, if someone um, let's say, is ill, but there's no suffering, there's some pain, we would typically want to help that person. I think that is a form of compassion. So maybe I have to correct myself a little bit. I think I was saying that compassion is primarily about responding to suffering once we make that distinction. But I think it's, as, I, as we reflect on this, I think it's about both, isn't it? You know, that compassion, and I think it's partly because we know that pain can so readily go to suffering. But I think it's partly just this wanting to meet um, needs and knowing that where there's pain, there are special needs and, and having that, uh, and maybe it's the empathy also. Does that help get at it some? Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? And, and of course, the, the, the deepest human suffering is from the reactivity. You know, wars are primarily about reaction. Violence and war, which are really the kinds of uh, phenomena that we probably most want to address. And of course, that's connected with unnecessary pain, right? Unnecessary pain and suffering. Poverty and not having needs met is often connected with injustice and so forth. But that we, um, yeah, that we want to uh, respond in a way to, uh, to both pain and suffering. Maybe last one, please. I was wondering how one deals with compassion when uh, one's extremely empathetic, almost an empath. Yeah. And you feel other people's pain, whether you want to yeah. or not. Yeah. What, yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, answer, answer to that riddle. Well, a great question of. What to do when one is very empathic, like my sister with the TV commercials, maybe? You know, or when we actually are very, very open to others' pain to the point where it may be unbalancing for us, right? That's, that's really where it's coming from. So I think it would be the, uh, basically the, here, my, my response would be 
most basically, it's a gift. And so it can be the basis for tremendous responsiveness and wonderful ways to be with others. But um, we have to learn how to find both further resources and appropriate boundaries. Right? I would, so I would focus especially on those two. So there may be, and I know, how many of you can relate to that question? I, w- I would think a lot of the people. I think meditators are often very sensitive, introverted, often very empathic beings. Not to... <laughs> okay. <laughs> Who have great capacities for compassion and swollen heads. <laughs> okay. But... Um, but how to find, I think probably most of us who raised our hands have found ways to keep the gift while maybe finding other resources. For myself, for example, being really grounded in the body has been really, really fundamental. Mm-hmm. You know, so I found that initially I was very sensitive, kind of through the heart, empathic, but I wasn't so grounded in the body. And so I could be, just be knocked off center very easily. And as there was more grounding in the body, it helped tremendously, you know, because I could actually have, almost like they do in martial arts, have a center that was there in addition to the heart center, like to have the hara or the, the uh, tantian in Chinese, that, that center, that center place in the belly, which would ground me and let the heart be responsive, but not be the only thing happening. You know, and, and so others, it might be to develop the wisdom. So it's how do, you, how do you develop other resources that help you to open and not be overwhelmed? And then in the learning process, just to find at times that boundaries are very important, that we know that only, you know, if I go over this threshold, it'll be too much, right? And so I, to re- then one has to know one's own cycles and capacities, but to really respect the boundaries, and it means sometimes pulling back even when someone's in need, knowing that I am beyond my capacity. Or it might be to, it might be, a, it could be a boundary of space or a boundary of time, I might say, you know, you know maybe I'll end with this. Uh, this is, I remember this was a story that Jack Kornfield told. He, um, this is a nice way to end. He told the story, he, he, he was speaking with one of the great Tibetan teachers. And he um, was saying, you know, I teach retreats and sometimes I just get, it's too much. And I find myself not really that present to people. I get kind of irritated that they're not learning more quickly and so forth. And, you know, I just, some, sometimes it happens like that. And do you have any suggestions? And he, he waited and he expected that he would get some great technique where he'd be able to visualize light that was suffusing his being so he'd be able to just offer compassion endlessly with, with connection to light and, you know, you know, the bodhisattvas of the vast realms would be in connection with him. And, but the, the teacher asked him, you know, how long the retreats were, how often you teach it. And, and he said, um, I recommend um, uh, teaching fewer retreats and having more breaks between them. <laughs> Right, so there you go. So, so the boundaries, so we probably could say a lot more. It's a great question. Maybe we can continue next week. But my initial response would be about 
Are there further resources, number one? And then what are appropriate boundaries as we, as we do that? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So let's just sit to close. We want to offer the fruits of our time here, the fruits of our exploration of compassion to each other and then to others in the world. In particular, as we close, there are two people who I want to give attention to as we close. We have a special request that came to mention Parnell Hughes and Matthew Pagano, who are suffering from illness at this time. We have another request. Um, for Sharon, um, who's going to be going through uh, surgery for reoccurring cancer. And um, she'll be having surgery on Friday. And if you could and she's someone you may have seen. She works also in the front office. Is, is a the bookstore. The bookstore is, is a. Is she a volunteer? No, she's an employee. She's a staff person with Spirit Rock. So bringing our our hearts, offering the fruits of our time to each other, to the ones named. And then bringing that energy of kindness and compassion out into the world, offering the fruits of our time, the fruits of our own practice to others for their benefit and ultimately their freedom. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.